Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Schuyler Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. Thanks for joining us in Harrisburg this evening. There's been a lot going on around town today, but we're happy you're here. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to encourage you all to take an event newsletter up at the front counter. We have a lot of upcoming events that we're looking forward to. Uh, a couple of them include uh, New York Times bestselling author Dee Watkins is going to be in conversation with uh, Harrisburg's own Brandon Flood and a notable gun control activist on his plan to take down the NRA. As always, these events are free and open to the public, so we'd love to see you back at Scholar. Now it is my pleasure to introduce our speakers for today's event. Uh, Larry Binda is the founder of The Berg and serves as its editor-in-chief. He oversees most functions of the paper, including content, design, and sales. Larry has worked for numerous newspapers and magazines and holds a master's degree in journalism. Man of the Hour is Mark Bowden, and he is the author of 13 books, including the number one New York Times bestseller, Black Hawk Down, and the 2017 bestseller, Huey 1968. He reported at the Philadelphia Inquirer for 20 years and now writes for The Atlantic, Esquire, and other newspapers and magazines. His most recent book is The Last Stone. And in The Last Stone, Bowden recounts a masterpiece of criminal interrogation and delivers a chilling and unprecedented look inside a disturbing criminal, criminal mind. Publishers Weekly writes that Bowden delivers a narrative nonfiction masterpiece, and NPR says that The Last Stone is a useful reminder that in an age of science, forensic, and video and data surveillance, the ability of one human being to coax the truth from another remains the cornerstone of a successful investigation. <laughs> a huge thanks for Mark and Larry for joining us this evening, so please join me in giving them a warm Harrisburg welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here, for joining sure. us at here at Midtown Scholar. Uh, I guess this is your first time here. No, it's like, not. It's I not. Was here, oh. no, I was here a couple years ago. Okay. Great. And I love to visit great bookstores, and this is a great bookstore. Yes, so. it is. <laughs> and and uh, you've written a great book. Thank you. Um, so, uh, typically, true crime type books are, are not my cup of tea. When Alex asked me to do it, I thought, okay, well, sure, I'll, I'll give it a shot. But boy, it was just a fascinating read. Thank and you. It Larry. was just just wonderful to read. And in fact, so much that now my book club is reading it, and they're all engrossed in it as well. Well, you have to invite me back to talk to your book club. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> yeah, one of them's back there. So. No, I always enjoy talking to people who've actually read my book. So, uh, that... <laughs> so um, one of the one of the uh, things that fascinated me as far as starting the book was that. It's, in a way, a little bit of your story as well, because when you were a very young reporter, you actually started reporting on, on the story itself. And right. I guess, you know, all these years later, uh, the story itself unfolded, and you were there to kind of sum it up in a way. So you've come full circle. Right. So why don't you explain how you got involved with the story and the, the genesis of the entire saga? Sure. I think, you know, I've actually thought maybe it's time for me to retire quietly and write no more in the sense that this was the first story I ever covered, the first big story when I was 23 years old. And it never ended. I mean, it was a story that didn't have an ending. And this is the ending, such as it is, to that story. So I came back to it, what, 40 years later. Yeah. Um, so but you, I was, yeah. I was a reporter in Baltimore. I was. Yeah. I was working for the Baltimore News American, which maybe some of you remember. Uh, it's now defunct. Um, and my job was to show up in the newsroom at 4 o'clock in the morning and call every police barracks in the state of Maryland and ask them if anything had happened overnight. 
And 99.9% .9 of the time, the answer was no, even if something had, in fact, happened. And in this case, it was March 26, 1975, and uh, the police in Wheaton, Maryland, said that these two little girls had gone missing. So, you know, my job, the part of that assignment was, if something has happened that's noteworthy, go there. And so I did immediately. And this became such a huge story. I was there for two weeks, um, covering it, getting to know the family, the detectives working on it, uh, really totally immersed in this terrible tragedy, which, as I said, had no ending. No one ever found any trace of these two little girls. So I was kind of like everybody else, left to wonder uh, for the rest of my life, you know, what happened? Yeah, so for the people who hadn't, haven't read the book, the story exploded, like, you know, every once in a while, similar stories today sort of explode, and, uh, you know, somebody's missing and has a lot of headlines. Right. And it was uh, big, big news in, around Washington. In fact, I went to college in Washington a little bit later, and from time to time, I think I heard about this story because yeah. it never got, never got solved. Yeah, the two biggest, I think, crime stories of modern times in the Washington area were this story and then the Malvo Beltway uh, Sniper yep. story. Those were the two big crime stories in that part of the world. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so um, it w remained unsolved for a long time. And, yeah. I, you know, for the most part, people, I, I guess, forgot about it. So bring us back to how it uh, came back to the surface. Well, for me, you know, I was working on my previous book, which is called Hui 1968, which couldn't have been about anything more wildly different. And I saw, actually, my sister, who lives in Ellicott City, Maryland, sent me a text because she'd seen an item in the Washington Post that they had found the suspect in this long, unsolved case. And my brothers and sisters, God bless them, they read everything that I write. So she was aware that many, many years ago I had written about this. And so I said, okay, well, I'm on it, you know? And, uh, and I called the Montgomery County, Maryland police and uh, asked about what had happened. And the, the fellow who answered who I spoke with is a Captain Darren Frank, and he knew who I was and he'd read some of my books. So he was kind of excited and he said, come on down, I'll introduce you to the detectives who solved this case. And so I went down, mostly, frankly, out of curiosity, because this case had really haunted me for a long time, and I really wanted to know, you know how they got a break in the case and what they had found out about what happened. And that, that initial meeting back in 2015 is what led to my writing this book. Right, so the break came in, what, 2013? Is that right. correct? Yep. Uh, you know, the, what, what happened is the, the Montgomery County, Maryland police amazingly never stopped trying to find answers in this case, partly because it was the biggest unsolved mystery, you know, in, in the department's history, modern history anyway, and partly because of a couple things. Um, one of the girls who disappeared, their names were Sheila and Kate Lyon, one of their brothers joined the Montgomery County, Maryland Police Department, so this made it kind of a family issue. And uh, the, John Lyon, the father, who was a fairly well-known figure in Washington, he was a radio disc jockey, when his career ended, he, this is the kind of guy he is, became a, a volunteer 
a victim counselor for people who are in you know cases in the courthouse in Montgomery County, Maryland, who are victims of crimes. And so given his tragic experience, he spent a lot of his time counseling people about it. So he was well known and liked by people within the police department and at the courthouse. So you know this, I think, kept this case very much on the minds of them. So what would happen is detectives, as they neared the end of their careers, would be assigned to the cold case unit and they would pick back up the Lyons case. And this went on for generations of cops. One of the um, detectives who worked on this story in recent years, his name was Ed Golian, had worked on the Lyon case when he was a cadet at the academy before he ever joined the police department because he was one of the cadets they sent out into the fields in 1975 as they searched for any kind of uh, sign of these girls. And at the end of his career, he'd served an entire career as a policeman and then a detective, he went back and reopened the Lyons case. It was one of the detectives working with him in that cold case unit in 2013 who found something that they had never seen before. Yeah, and it was, it was quite serendipitous. I mean, uh, uh, and, and, and a, I guess a monumental error on the, on the behalf of the suspect as well. Yeah. So why don't you start talking a little bit about, about the suspect, about Lloyd Welch and, yeah. and how that came to be. Well, Lloyd Welsh, who, um, and I'm not giving anything away because it's really not a whodunit, it's more like a how yeah. they found out whodunit. Mm -hmm. um, when he was 18 years old, he is the person who kidnapped and killed these two little girls when he was 18 years old. So back in 1975, there's a massive police effort, Tri-County, biggest news story, everybody looking for these two little girls. He, I think, starts to panic thinking they're going to get on to him. So he goes to the police department and tells them a false story. He gives them a story about how he witnessed the girls being kidnapped from the mall. He gives them this elaborate description of the man who he saw taking them from the mall and the car he was driving. He was high, which was typical of Lloyd at age 18. They, they gave him a lie detector test, which he flunked. Uh, they confronted him with a lot of the discrepancies of what he had told them, and he admitted that he'd made most of it up. So they just dismissed him. They thought, this is just a knucklehead who's high, there's a reward, so he's come in here trying to uh, draw attention to himself or maybe get some reward money. And they wrote at the top of the, of the uh, statement that he made, lied, right? Which, which he, in fact, he did. He did, in yeah, fact, right, and, yeah. and he admitted that he right, lied yeah. and stuck it in the um, uh, file. Well, by the time Ed Golian and Chris Homrock were working on it in the 2010 to 11 to 13, uh, there were 31 boxes filled with documents, you know, for this file. This long predates the electronic filing system. So these are yellowed file folders full of papers and things like that. And Chris thought that he had been through every one of those files a hundred times. He felt like he knew it inside and out. And in fact, as he tells the story, it was on an evening where he had decided, this is it. You know, there's nothing that I can think of to do that I haven't already done. And he was kind of mentally preparing himself to give up on this case when he went back to his desk and he saw this old statement. And the, the reason, the thing that's so ironic is that he was attracted to the statement for, the, for a completely wrong reason. 
he had, he had a prime suspect in mind who he had never been able to prove was the person who did this. And that suspect was a man named Ray Molesky who walked with a limp. And so at the end of this statement, even though it says lied on the top of it, Lloyd Welsh, in describing the person who took the girl, said the man walked with a limp. So Chris thought, oh my God, you know, maybe this is the truth. Maybe this guy really did see Ray Molesky take the girls from the mall. Who is Lloyd Welsh? This is 38 years later. Is he still alive? Where is he today? So they set out to find Lloyd. Yeah, and where did they find him? In prison. <laughs> in prison for child molestation, which suddenly they're thinking, wait a minute, you know? Is he a witness, or was he maybe somehow involved in this? So that's when this story really gets in gear. They go visit Lloyd in prison, initially to interview him as a witness, hoping that he'll be able to give them a positive ID of their suspect. Ray Molesky. Ray Molesky. Mm -hmm. and, they, and they talk to Lloyd for about four or five hours, and the more Lloyd talks, he lies again. He tells them a completely different story than the one he told them back in 1975. So then they're, they're asking, why is this person lying like this? I mean, wh what is, is he playing a game? Or wh why would he do this? And so they don't know, they have nothing to go on other than instinct. There's something wrong here. What is it with this guy? So at the end of that interview, they asked him to speculate. What do you think happened to those girls? Now, I think probably 99% of the people in the world who are familiar with those, the case at that point, if you said, what do you think happened to those girls? They would say, sadly, I think they were probably raped and killed. Lloyd says they were probably killed and chopped up and burned. And so the detectives who are listening in the next room, they look at each other and say, who says chopped up and burned? That's pretty specific. Turns out to have been exactly what happened to them, so. Right, so they, uh, they keep going back and, and visiting him, and, and this is what most of the book, if you haven't read the book, is, is about, is this extended interrogation right. that goes on for a couple of years. Right, and, and really what the story is about is this amazing process, and, and I think it's, it's the reason why I can talk about the book and the story without ruining it, because really the only way you can appreciate what went on is to get in the interrogation room with these detectives and watch over a period of a year and a half how they gradually maneuver Lloyd into revealing more and more and more. And think about this. I mean, this is a compulsive liar. Yeah. Lloyd, from the very first time he walked in to talk to the police, lied. He lied about everything. He didn't just lie about seeing something that he didn't see. He lied about his age. He lied about how, long, how far he'd gotten in school. He said he was married. He wasn't everything, he says, is a lie. So this is a compulsive liar who would have every reason in the world not to admit what he did. And they get him to admit what he did. Uh, to me, it's just nothing short of miraculous. Yeah, in the most excruciating did. way. It was, yeah, it's difficult to... to uh, to stomach sometimes, yeah. but um, if you want to know how a serious in, cr uh, criminal interrogation happens, this is your book. And, and, uh, and the reason it exists is when I went down to meet these detectives, they told me kind of in summary 
that they built their case on this extended interrogation. So I said, well, did you keep, do you have like records of it or transcripts? They said, we have video of the whole thing, 70 plus hours of video. And at that point I knew this is probably gonna be a book. <laughs> because I've long been interested in interrogation. I've written about it before. So here was an opportunity to actually, as I say, get in the room and watch these detectives at work and see how they did what they did. Okay, so a large part of the story, of course, is about Lloyd, but then there's this other big chunk, which is Lloyd's family. Yeah. And that just adds even more interest and substance to the entire story. Uh, one of the reviewers said that the family is like a gothic subplot. Sure. You know? family, family's a character in itself. Oh, I mean, what a family. Uh, and you know, it al also explains how a character like Lloyd, who would do a thing like this, doesn't just appear suddenly. He emerged out of a family culture, one where uh, parents preyed sexually on children, uh, uncles raped nieces and nephews, older cousins, molested younger cousins, siblings, experimented sexually with each other. Lloyd himself was raped by his father when he was like eight or nine years old. So out of this, and none of this, by the way, was ever reported to the police. This is all within the family, and what happens in the family stays in the family. Mm -hmm. It was, an, it was a, a family that had relocated to Hyattsville, Maryland from Thaxton, Virginia, which is in sort of the foothills of the Appalachians in Western Virginia. And this was a, a family culture that was very insular, sort of outlaw, um, and very um, isolated from mainstream society. So this is where Lloyd came from. Right. So um, the, 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 the family themselves, I, I, don't, I don't know how you feel. I don't know if you feel that. Uh, one thing that interested me is how much did the family actually know about what Lloyd was up to and what had happened to these girls? Yeah. And uh, what was your feeling about that? I think that um, some members of the family knew. Um, I think that, and there's, believe me, there are so many theories. At the end of the book, I asked each of the detectives to tell me what their best mm. theory was of the case, and every one of the four detectives has a different theory. Lloyd is at the center of all the stories. We know Lloyd did this, but did he have help? And if he did have help, which he probably did, who in his family helped him. Lloyd, as you'll see, as you follow this interrogation, accused directly various members of his family of being the ones who kidnapped and killed the girls, trying to throw suspicion off of himself and, and succeeding only in deepening it. But he blamed his cousin Teddy, he blamed his uncle Dick, he blamed his cousin Henry. Um, and so there's all these different stories that the police have to run down and check out. And the only common thread through all of them is that Lloyd was the character at the center of it. So, I mean, I think everybody who reads the book, anyone who ever worked on the case, ends up with their own theory of exactly what happened in and around Lloyd. Yeah. So one of the fascinating things about Lloyd that I found was how, as you mentioned, his story kind of kept changing but how he would um, keep like incorporating new truths 
into right. his story and how he would just sort of change his story without any kind of sort of shamelessly, without right. ever acknowledging right. that he was actually changing his story when presented with new yeah, facts. Exactly. And he was smart enough never to try to deny or push back on something he knew the detectives knew to be true. So, and so they're continually presenting him with information that they've found. And then, as you say, most people, when they're confronted with or caught in a lie, uh, they are embarrassed. Um, Lloyd was never embarrassed. You know, if he was caught in a lie, he would very smoothly proceed to tell a totally different story and pretend as though this was the story that he had been telling all along. It's just, it, he is the slipperiest character that you will ever encounter. But in a way, you know, for me, and this gets off point a little bit, you know, I, I think Lloyd came to sort of, uh, be, it came, became an emblem of what I perceive as a sort of a age of lies which we live in. I think lying has become a big part of our culture, mainstream culture, so that not just in politics, the obvious that's obviously going on in politics, but in journalism, we have whole networks that are devoted to propaganda. Uh, and and the, the concept about what you say is, is now very often about uh, what you're trying to get over, what you're trying to sell, what you're trying to convince someone of, as opposed to some commitment to facts and to actual knowledge and understanding. Now, Lloyd is someone who has absolutely no concern with anything other than to save himself and to tell a story that he can sell. So he will just effortlessly switch his story and go in a completely different direction. We've seen other people like this. So. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> so, you know, if you're used to kind of those police procedurals from you know, the 70s, like Columbo or something like that, and at the end the character just like comes out and realizes he's cornered and confesses everything right. and that's the end. Well, right. this is exactly the opposite of Exactly. That. There is no part of Lloyd Welch that would ever um, come right out and say, okay, this is exactly what happened and it would be true. So I know that, for instance, when I was finishing reporting this book, I wanted to meet Lloyd, um, and I, so I wrote him a letter, and I told him I, want, I was writing this book, and he was going to be at the center of it, and I wanted to meet him. And uh, so he wrote back that if I put $5,000 in his prison account, and if I made all these ridiculous promises, like I wouldn't name him, that I wouldn't use his picture or anything like that, then he would agree to talk to me. So I thought, well, you know what? I don't even really want to interview Lloyd all that much because I know he's just going to lie to me, and I'll, he sent me down the same path that the detectives had gone down for the past two and a half years. But I did want to have a chance to meet him, so I wrote him back and said, look, I'll come down to the prison. We'll discuss your terms. So he said, okay. So I went down and I met Lloyd, uh, which was interesting and worthwhile because it gave me a sense of him. And I also knew from having watched him for more than 70 hours that this is a guy who can't stop talking. So I knew once I got in a room with him, if I started asking him questions, he would probably start answering them. That's exactly what happened. Um, but ultimately, I told him, Lloyd, I'm, you know, I'm not going to give you any money, and I'm not going to you know, make any deal with you whatsoever. And he was angry. And so he wrote me a letter you know, threatening me, saying that his, you know, if I used his name and wrote about him, his lawyers were going to come after me, which was just ludicrous. And, but then he said, 
but if you put $300 in my account, I'll discuss it. So the price came way, way down. <laughs> yeah, there were several times during the course of the book that I just sort of threw my hands up and said, why don't you just shut up? I yeah, didn't, I, I didn't know. Under, I didn't understand why he would just go on and on, and then every once in a while he would, he would say, "Okay, well that's it. Now I'm going to lawyer up," and he never did. No, he never did. One time he actually got up from his chair and walked to the door because, and they would say to him, "Anytime you want, you know, you don't have to talk to us. If you want to get a lawyer, you should get a lawyer. If you want to leave, you should leave." And he, but he didn't want to leave because he would get up, walk to the door. They would call his bluff, and he would come back and sit down and start talking again. And that was actually the question main question I wanted to ask him, why? Why did you keep talking to the police? And he lied to me. He said, <laughs> he didn't know that I, had, that I, what all I knew. He said, well, they forced me to talk to him. Well, anybody who's seen him in action and seen these tapes knows that he's enjoying himself and he's very much engaged voluntarily in doing this. So, I mean, that's what yeah, you Yeah, he seemed to Lloyd. enjoy the game and it, uh, a lot of times, of course, he's a huge manipulator, you know, I mean, he's, he's a psychopath. Um, but at the same time, it was almost sometimes the interrogators themselves were trying to manipulate him, and it was this oh, sort yeah. of co-manipulation, this little dance that was going on. Sure. I mean, the, the detectives used every kind of ploy in the books. They lied to him, they made things up to present to him, to scare him into talking to him. They were struggling constantly to figure out how to get him to tell him something new. And what they eventually realized was they should stop listening to the stories that Lloyd told, because the stories were always false. But as Dave Davis, who is the lead detective in this, told me, people, when they lie, they lie about the big things, but they flesh out the lie with the truth. And so what they recognized was every variation of the story that Lloyd would tell, there would be certain particulars, like the kind of car that was being driven, like the, the description of the room where the girls were held. These details were the same in story to story to story. So they began to pull together the things that they realized were most likely true out of all these lies. Mm. It's fascinating yeah. to see. Yeah. So at, at the end of the book, and I don't really want to I guess ruin this for people who haven't read it, but... But uh, you have to really go through it, so you're not yeah. ruining it, I don't Yeah, think. so, so as, as you it. mentioned before, the interrogators, you asked them, what do you think happened? And it was interesting because each one had a completely different scenario, completely yeah. different thought about what they thought happened. And for each, it was kind of a reflection of their of own themselves. personalities. Yeah. yeah, That's correct. And, and where they were coming from. Right, and how they viewed the world and how they put together the same set of facts that you have at the end of the story. So, yeah, but, you know, other than the fact that Lloyd did this, I don't really... I think no one really knows all of the um, details around what happened. Yeah, and, and I, I found myself thinking about those different scenarios that the interrogators provided to you, what my own thoughts what, what were. Do, what do you think, Larry? Well, it, so <laughs> it was exactly what you just said. So my own approach usually, or, or philosophy, especially having interviewed thousands and thousands of people over the years as a journalist, is uh, I kind of believe in Occam's razor that the simplest explanation is usually the right one. Right. So immediately I was attracted to the first explanation. Um, so the, the much less conspiracy-minded one, right. which is this was kind of a crime of opportunity by Lloyd. 
you know, I don't think he could plan his way to have a, out of a paper bag anyway. Right. Um, and that minimized the involvement of the family just because I guess I'm, I'm, I tend to be anti-conspiracy and tend to be much more people do really stupid things yeah. as individuals. Yeah. I'm kind of with you. But it, it, I mean, as I say, you'll end up with your own um, perception of what really went on. I've had people tell me the exact opposite, that they think, oh, there's no way that Lloyd, this adult 18-year-old, could have pulled this off by himself. He had to have had help. This has to have been planned. So, And to be honest, I don't know the answer. And I don't know one knows the answers. But uh, it's fascinating to think about it and try and figure it out. Yeah. I, I guess at some point, at least some part of the family must have been at least implicitly involved in some way, even if it was just covering it up. Well, I mean, he's, he definitely is the one who kidnapped the girls. Mm -hmm. Right. And we know that he disposed of their bodies. Mm -hmm. um, so I think what happened in the interim, I think we can assume that he was pretty seriously involved with as well. Right. You know, the one thing I will say is that I had zero interest in writing about this as a way of exploiting the tragedy of these two little girls and their family um, I never would have done it if not for the, this amazing interrogation process at the center of it. And I wrote a letter to John and Mary Lyon, the parents of the two little girls, telling them that I was doing this and telling them that I would be happy to talk to them if they wanted to talk to me. And they indicated back to me that they did not want to talk about it anymore, but they had no objection to my doing this because they, as, they were as... Um, amazed themselves by what these detectives did as I was and felt that it was worth writing their story. So. Mm -hmm. Well, especially, uh, you know, you, you, you had to feel so much for them uh, during the course of this, and, and they do take kind of a, you know, they, they disappear through much of the book. Nonetheless, I kept coming back and thinking, what their lives must have been like during all of those years yeah. that their, their girls were missing. Yeah, I think that they had to just make a decision to move on with their life. I mean, you never get over anything like this, but clearly the girls were not coming home. They have two boys to raise, and I think they dealt with it by... They, you know, back when I was covering the story, they opened their home to all the reporters who were covering it because they knew that publicity would help possibly bring the girls home. Uh, but at a certain point, they just stopped doing any interviews. They stopped any sort of public statements or roles. And I think they put their heads down and tried to get on with their life as best they could. And that's, in effect, what John says at the end of the book mm -hmm. at Lloyd's sentencing. Mm -hmm. Okay. How are we doing on time? One more question. Okay. Um, so... Um, Well, let me just say, I can yeah, say one more thing about yeah. it. I think that another thing that was really um, good for me about writing this was that when I was 23 years old and covering this story, I, didn't, I wasn't married, I had no kids. Um, I was very excited about covering this story as a story. You know, I was getting. I was writing stories on the front page of the newspaper. That was the first time that I'd ever written front page stories. And to be to look back on that, you know, I'm almost a little ashamed of how I viewed the Lyons family 
and the people directly caught up in this as subjects in a story, you know. And th that was a reflection of my own immaturity. Um, as I grew older and had kids of my own, I think my appreciation for how horrible a tragedy this was for them grew over time. And the other piece of it that always haunted me was I could never grasp who would do something like this. I mean, we all know there are evil people in the world, and we hear plenty of cases about children being kidnapped and molested, and it actually happens very, very rarely. But when it does happen nowadays, we tend to hear all about it. So that wasn't a huge stretch of the imagination. But two girls at one time, you know, it, it really beggared my imagination. You know, why and who would do such a thing? And I think that this story, as you learn more and more about Lloyd Welsh and the family Lloyd Welsh came from, um, you begin to understand how this happened and why it happened. And it's no one's fault but Lloyd Welsh's and possibly other members of his family who helped him with this. But as awful as it is, I came to a point where I felt like, sadly, sad to say, I can see why this happened. Hmm. So. And I, I can sympathize with your feeling of covering the story because I've had that thought many times, and especially when I was you know, a very young journalist like you were at the time, and I had to cover uh, somebody had gotten murdered or uh, some young kid had slammed into a telephone pole on a highway somewhere and gotten killed. Uh, one time I had to cover a story about some young guy who was in high school who jumped into a reservoir and drowned and all of these tragic stories. And you feel that you're, if you have a conscience, I guess, that, that yeah, you have a job to do, but you're also kind of exploiting the situation in yeah. a way. And you become kind of clinical about it yeah. if you're not careful. Um, but I think I actually grew over time far more interested in the people I was writing about and far more empathetic about the people I was writing about. And it's experiences like this that stretch you and challenge you and, you know, I hopefully make you better at what mm -hmm. you do. We're going to open it up to audience Q&A at this time. So if you, have, if you have a question, just raise your hand and I'll come to you with the mic. <laughs> Good. Uh, and I disagree with both of you. I don't think Lloyd could have done this on his own. So I, yeah. um, uh, I, I'm, I, like Larry, I was not a true crime person going into this. Uh, I picked up the book on a Sunday afternoon, and by Monday night, I was, I was done. Uh -huh. um, when I was about 50 pages in, uh, the word that kept popping in my head was a word that you used, process. Right. And um, I was just amazed by the process. And so my, my question for you, it's actually a, a two-part question. Do you have any insights into how those people, the detectives, can do that process? I mean, two and a half, three years, it's so slow and methodical, and there are so many directions it goes. And I just, I don't get it. Um, yeah. And from your perspective as a writer, 
about your own process because you're similarly following uh, this methodical, long process. Um, I've written, I've done mag uh, for magazines and flight mags, and I, I, I'm, after a week, I'm good. But <laughs> for you to watch the 70 hours and do that, and right. if there's any insight you have into both their process and your process and, and how you both navigated that. Well, that's a really good question. I think for the detectives, and I can't really speak for all of them, they're all motivated somewhat differently, being different people. Um, professionally, they're very motivated because this is a really big mystery, and it's, as I said, probably the biggest unsolved case in modern history for the department. So the opportunity to find answers is professionally challenging. Um, and some of them are at the end of their careers, so they're eager to try and test themselves against this case that no one has ever been able to solve. Um, a number of the detectives knew, got to know the Lyon family well, and they really were driven to find answers for them. They knew how important it was for them to have some knowledge of what happened. Um, I think that it took a toll on them. Um, the roles that they had to play, buddying up to Lloyd, trying to make him feel like he's their friend, even as he's telling them these most horrible things and pretending like, well, they really aren't all that terrible, you're not really that terrible a person, while they feel the opposite, um, it's, it, it takes an emotional toll on them. Uh, Katie Leggett, one of the detectives, ended up going to a therapist about it. I think, you know, I've been told by each of them in different ways that this case has really um, bothered them. But, you know, they're professionals, and, um, you know, so for all those reasons, both uh, they're caring for the Lyon family, the professional challenge, you know, they stayed with it. And the department, you know, was really eager to stay with it. For me, I can only say that I, over many years, have evolved into who I am. <laughs> and I started, I was talking to Larry about this earlier, I started writing for daily newspapers and I was writing three and four stories a day. And I can remember telling my editor, this is back around this time, that I was from that day forward only gonna give her one story a day because I wanted to be able to spend more time and write a better story. Well, from that I became someone who started trying to mostly write stories for the Sunday paper. So I could have three and four days to work on a story and I could write longer. And then I was writing magazine stories where I would spend sometimes weeks or even months working on a story and I would write much longer. Then it was magazine serials, you know, and then it was books. And I've spent, you know, five and six years writing a book. For me, the opportunity after so many years of telling stories to be able to work on a story as long as I want to until I feel like I've arrived at my own understanding of what happened on all levels, you know, that I can get to. This is why this happened. This is how this happened. Whether it's a battle like the Battle of Hue in Vietnam or whether it's this crime case, I'm, I'm not ready to stop working on it until I'm confident I have an understanding of this. And, and I hasten to say that my understanding is just that. It's my understanding. It's what you get when you read one of my books. Another writer doing the same thing would write a book and it would be a different book than the one that I wrote. But that's something that I love to do. And, and I'm lucky actually to have arrived at a point in my career and my life where I get to do that. And uh, it's not hard for me. I, I tell you, the one thing that I am wary of, though, is plunging into a project 
that I think I will lose interest in. Uh, because I, it would be like hell for me to have to get up in the morning and work on something that I'm totally tired of and not interested in anymore and didn't want to do. So I'm pretty careful about the stories that I choose to write about. And the one thing I'll say about them is that they generally nowadays have some personal connection for me. In this case, the fact that I covered this back when I was a kid. And, and, and there's a story basically behind most of the books that I've written that connect those stories to me. That's my insurance that I won't get bored with it. Other questions? I heard you talk about uh, your uh, book about Vietnam. So could you expand or contract, compare and contrast your process for that book way yeah. in this book? Uh, you know, what's similar, what's different, how did you approach it? Uh, you know, yeah. give us some insight into that. Okay. Um, two, obviously, two very different projects, two very different stories. The Battle of Hue was a month-long battle that involved tens of thousands of participants that took place in Vietnam. Uh, so in general, the challenge is the same. How do I understand what happened there? Uh, how do I understand militarily what happened? How do I understand the people who were caught up in that battle, both Americans and Vietnamese? The challenges are different. In the case of Hue, it was a monumental challenge just because there has been so much written about the war in Vietnam. There are all these records in the National Archives, in Lyndon Johnson's library in Austin, Texas. There's the challenge of getting to Vietnam and hiring somebody to find the people who fought against Americans. There's challenge of attacking the archives in Hanoi. So you just figure these things out. It's, it's one of the fun parts of being a journalist is that the way to find out what you need to find out is different with every story that you write. And you have to invent that process, I do anyway, every time I go forward. I'm never writing a book that's just like the last book I wrote. So whenever I set out on a project, I have to identify how am I going to find out everything I need to find out about this. And in the case of the Battle of Hue, it was years of work, traveling back and forth to Vietnam, finding Vietnam veterans to get them to tell me their experiences, finding the records in the National Archives, and so on and so on. In this case, it was much simpler, in a way, because I knew that the centerpiece of this book would be this interrogation. And I ended up watching 70-plus hours of this interrogation. And in the book, even though there's a lot of dialogue drawn from those interrogation sessions, it represents only about one one-hundredth of what I actually watched and listened to. I remember my wife got so sick of hearing Lloyd Welsh's voice because I'd be sitting there with my laptop watching these videos for months. You know, She'd come in and say, when are you going to finish writing that story? I can't stand listening to that man's voice. So I hope that answers your question. Yes. Uh, with the rising awareness around false confessions um, as a result of, of interrogations, um, in, with your experience in the past and with this writing this book, what, what have you found to be um, the, the the most, um, you know, fundamental uh, component to an effective interrogation is it, you know, 
the moral compass of the interrogators? Is it the tactics that they're using? Is it a combination of the, both of those things? Right. How do people get to the, the right destination? Right. Well, that's a really good question, and it's one that fascinates me. Um, I think that there are two components to most interrogations. One is fear, and the other is um, friendliness. Um, you know, most often, most interrogators will tell you that the best way to get somebody to talk to you is to be nice to them, right? But I would add to that that there has to be a fear that there's, if I don't talk to them, that something bad could happen to me. And the other part of the answer to that question is, why are you, what are you interrogating for? Um, the moral question is, is a difficult one because it's not that difficult where law enforcement is concerned. Because in law enforcement, you're trying to get information to charge someone with a crime, right? And if you threaten them or abuse them, beat them, you are most likely going to get a false, you can make them say whatever you want them to say. And that means that any information that you get is tainted. That's why in a court of law, you should never allow any testimony that has been coerced or has, you know, that someone got it through unethical methods. But in a war where your men are being killed and you're, you have a mission that's life and death, um, war poses a different set of moral questions, you know. Is, is it, you know, should I do whatever I have to do to get information from somebody? And I think that the, and I've written about this and I'm, I've written somewhat controversially about this because I think that people who abhor the idea of torture, the idea of, of coercing information from someone, um, want to believe that it never works. And if, it, if that's true, if it never works, it's no longer even a moral question. It's purely a practical question. Why would you coerce or torture somebody if you never got useful information from them? It's a moral question precisely because torture works. People will tell you things when they're afraid, when they're hurting, when they're uncomfortable, if they see a way out of their problem. Very often they'll tell you false information, but they are just as likely to tell you something that's useful or true. So it becomes a moral question precisely because it works. It doesn't mean you should do it. In fact, when I wrote about this, I, I made that point, and I said, that is true, but as a country, we should never legalize it. So that if I'm an interrogator, and I feel it is morally incumbent on me, and a good example is the German police chief who, who uh, had a kidnapper who they caught, who had buried a 10-year-old boy in a box underground, and they wanted to find this boy before he suffocated. And he refused to tell them where he'd put this kid. And the police chief threatened him with torture, and he told them where, the, where he'd put the kid. The police chief was fired and prosecuted for, even in Germany, obviously they're very sensitive to this, threatening torture. And my argument here would be the police chief did the right thing, and he should be prepared under those circumstances to lose his job. Because what's more important, you know? So that's the way I think it should be. I think if the, if the interrogator is going to use questionable methods, the interrogator has to accept the culpability for doing so, and has to be prepared to defend themselves 
uh, this was the reason I did it. And if it's a defensible reason, I doubt many juries or judges would uh, seriously prosecute them for it. It's a really good, fascinating question. Um, so mine is not so much a question as a uh, thank you so much for writing this because um, I was nine years old and lived in the D.C. area when this crime occurred. And right. um, I can tell you as a 52-year-old, I'm, I'm almost in tears just thinking about it. it sure. Um, it absolutely collectively changed the dynamic of that area and how people thought and how we perceived. It was the first time as a child I realized children got hurt. And yeah. like that was, um, it, it did, it changed things for people there. Without and a doubt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, we, you know, as a community though, we had so much um, respect and wanted to protect that family. Yeah. You know, it was really very touching in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, so, so thank you for that. And, and I'm so amazed that there are human beings that can walk around and sit across from people like this man mm. and not choke immediately on this, but mm. can, can do their jobs and, and do what has to be done. Yeah. Um, that's amazing to me. That's a gift. I do not have that gift. Yeah. Um, and they pay a price, too. They do. Yeah. They do. Um, but just uh, the little bit that I've, I've been able to read, um, I'm fascinated by the psyche of this person already, mm. just to insert himself in the way that he did. Um, the other thing you brought up was the Malvo case, and I, the first similarity I thought was the red herring of the white truck, and this right. gentleman with the man tape and the, the, tape man the tape recorder. So we all were looking for a man with a tape recorder. Right. So um, it's very interesting to me, and I wonder if... if uh, the, the information that came out of these interrogations and the psychology of this person um, might add a new level of how we in, understand criminals and their motivation and, and interjecting themselves. I know that that's kind of already something they know people do. Right. But um, whether or not this is from a, a profiling standpoint, if this added anything to understanding this kind of behavior. Yeah, I should think it would. I think, you know, that obviously the FBI and law enforcement do profiles of um, murderers, of people who do things like this to help try to understand if there is a general type. I was at an event in Philadelphia and a uh, neurologist said, do you realize, because he had read the book, that Lloyd Welsh fits into a particular uh, type of sociopath and, and, and he, has, he exhibits all these characteristics. And I told him, I said, well, doctor, thanks, but you know, I, I just wrote this story and if as a case study, and it helps to inform these more general notions than, than great. I will say this about your point about it, this being an emotional issue, it is. For, and, and back when this happened in 1975, this is pre-internet, pre-cable TV. So a phenomenon like this was a regional phenomenon. This was a huge, huge story in Virginia, Maryland, Washington, but without the amplifier of the internet and without 24-7 cable TV, it really didn't go much further than that. And that made it all the more kind of a local tragedy. And it totally changed the way parents, the kind of freedom parents would give their children. I mean, I remember, I grew up in a Maryland suburb, and I have seven brothers and sisters, and my mom, she would uh, give us breakfast and say, get lost. I don't want to see you again until lunchtime. And we would just have the run of the town. And it was just considered perfectly safe. Nowadays, I think if a parent leaves the child 
unattended for 20 minutes somewhere, the, they're apt to be answering questions from social services about it. I mean, that's how we as a society have changed. Probably the pendulum has swung too far in the other, direct, in the other direction, but you can point to this particular case in the Washington, Baltimore, Virginia area as the moment where everything changed. We have time for just one more question. So my question is a little bit more about the technical aspects of writing. Um, for example, you said that 70 hours of interrogations. And so, of course, you could say, well, that's just 70 hours of listening. Yep. But um, obviously, there's more. And then presumably, it's sort of based on going from the interrogations and incorporating interviews with the detectives, leaving the people, uh, the family aside, but just focusing on the crime angle. Right. Um, so what I'm wondering is, as, as you're working through this, are you taking the, the transcripts and just as a gestalt, and then later going back and pulling out pieces once you've constructed a story, the, 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 your story, your understanding, right. and pulling out examples? Are you building your conclusion in sort of inductive versus deductive uh, use of the, the data from the transcripts uh, or, or video uh, directly of the conversations and also of the interviews with the, uh, the detectives and whoever right. else was materially involved in helping you move this investigation forward. That's a good question. Uh, and it was, you know, it was the central challenge of writing this book, of doing the reporting. Initially, I need to watch all of it to develop an overview of how this happened, how this whole interrogation unfolded. And while I was doing that, there were, I think, 11 separate long interrogation sessions, I would write notes to myself summarizing, this is what happened of note you know, in this session. And then I would watch the next session. And, I, and that way I'm developing my own kind of a key to this otherwise very sprawling thing. And so then when I start to see the, the outline of, of what happened, the turning points, what's important, then I'm going back to the detectives and I'm saying, and this is hard for them because they're, they never went back and watched all 70 hours of this. They, they, that's the last thing in the world they would ever want to do. But, and so they're viewing this through, you know, sort of through a telescope turned the other way. You know? And so I'm asking them, okay, in October of 2014, when you went in to talk to Lloyd, what did you know then? You know, what was your strategy going into that session? You know, when Lloyd said this, why did you say that, you know, and I would be asking questions about the things that I had noted seemed significant to me, a point where Lloyd suddenly tells them something new that they didn't know before. I'd want to know how they arrived at that point. And so, and then sometimes I'd find out from them something that I had overlooked. They would say, well, you'll, you may note that earlier in that session he had said this, and I hadn't paid any attention to that. So now I've got them you know, sort of guiding me through with their own experience. And ultimately, though, it becomes my challenge to finally decide this is how this unfolded, because I'm only going to be able to use, as I said, about maybe one one-hundredth of the material. This is the story that I divine from all of that raw data. This is the story I'm going to tell. And then going back and re-watching the key moments again and again and again, and describing them. So that's how I did it. 
Yeah. And, you know, and, and to be to be honest, I mean, one one quick little point. I mean, some people who read this book will feel like there's too much of that in there. There's too much of this dialogue, and I get it. You know, because it's tiresome to listen to Lloyd tell one lie after another lie after another lie. But I would argue that the only way to capture what those detectives went through to get to the end of this is to go through that process with them. So to some extent, you are obliged, as they were, to sit there, and I was, <laughs> to listen to this person. Can we give a round of applause for Mark and Larry? Thank you.